Hi, Eric. Hi, doing well. How are you? Good too. Thank you. <laughs> um, we'll wait like a few more minutes um, to let people arrive. The, um, I just open up a little beforehand so people have like time to arrive, and uh, then I'll introduce you and and the stage is yours. Then thank you. Sounds good. Thanks. Oh, um, I wanted to add, if you see, have anyone in the audience that, you know, is part of your research group or anyone you know, please, you know, let me know that I can bring them up to the stage. Sounds good. Yeah, I think my supervisor said he might try to stop by. Um, so I'll send you a message if that happens. Great, thanks. Hey, Dr. Jones, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Cool. 
Hey Abyss, um, meet Eric, uh, Dr. Jones. Um, yeah, um, this Abyss, he is one of our, you know, uh, friends of mine here on Clubhouse and he's a data scientist um, and biomedical and chemical engineer. So yeah, hi Abyss. Yeah, great to meet you. Um, is there a way that I can see who all is like in attendance so um yeah the, i i know i i got this question <laughs> earlier today from another you know onboarding meeting so there's no really polling or any type of um like like you have on on zoom uh yeah there's there's no way to do that here i guess clubhouse is still pretty new so there are uh, frequency like updates um, that are quite frequent and they keep adding features. But for now, it's relatively straightforward, the app. So it's raising hand and um, yeah, the, and then messaging and adding like links, but not too much more unless I'm mistaken. Go ahead, guys, if you know more features. There are a couple of workarounds in terms of polling. So one thing that I've seen is that uh, people will turn hand rising on and off and then they'll ask like a yes or no question or something and get people to hand raise and then do a poll that way. But it's not a, it's not an integrated feature. They haven't gotten that far yet in the software development. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, slowly learning how this app works. Well, for the first day and, you know, and then having right away, you know, your own room feature that's already <laughs> very good. So, um, yeah, I think we can slowly start if um, people come in uh, later on, we can, we can always reset the room. Reset the room means we give a very short summary and uh, and people can ask questions if that's okay with you eric and then i'll introduce you now yeah that sounds great okay great uh welcome everyone to the science society um we are very honored to have here dr eric jones he will um talk about his latest re very exciting research and um, so, yeah, let me introduce you. So, um, Dr. Eric Jones, he's a physicist that um, enjoys studying ecological systems. And he's speci specifically interested in how the composition of the gut microbiome can be controlled. And um, he is using models for theoretical ecology. Uh, from theoretical ecology in conjunction with novel dimensionality reduction tools. A little bit about um, his uh, person. He grew up in Colorado and went to the Colorado School of Mines for his undergrad and um, in engineering physics and computational and applied mathematics. Then he moved to California, um, got his PhD in physics from UC Santa Barbara, and he worked in um, John Carlson in the complex systems group. 
and once he arrived at UCSB, he immediately was approached and welcomed by the theoretical ecology community. And uh, while he did all of this, additionally, he also studied pedagogy. <laughs> I'm sorry, my English is sometimes so bad. Uh, teaching an upper division physics course as an instructor of record and receiving a certificate in college and university teaching. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, it's really incredible um, that he also uh, learned how to teach because most scientists don't know how to do that at all. And um, yeah, and you know, he received his um, Bachelor of Science with summa cum laude. He uh, re re received uh, selected awards and achievements. Um, um, so yeah, he he's a really his work is really interested. So I'm really happy to introduce you, and thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time. We really appreciate it, and the stage is yours. Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, very kind introduction. Uh, it's great to be with you all. Uh, I'm excited to talk about some recent work, and really, it I began working on it while I was a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara with Gene Carlson and the Complex Systems Group, and then I finished it up here in Vancouver, which is where I am right now, working with David Sivak at Simon Fraser University. So uh, I guess I'll just begin with a brief spiel, and the way I sort of like to present it is... Um, I'll begin with the story. Uh, and so being from Colorado, I like to backpack. And about five years ago, I had the great pleasure of backpacking the Colorado Trail. And when you're hiking this trail, you don't bring, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables to make dinner because they're heavy. And instead, you make dehydrated meals and so you just boil water and you pour the water into this bag and you make dinner and you eat it with a spork. And then when you're done with dinner, your spork is all greasy and you want to get rid of the grease, but you don't want to use soap because that would sort of violate leave no trace um, rules. And so instead of using soap, you'll take dirt from the ground and pine needles and pine cones and you'll rub the spork and you'll get all the grease off. You'll get the grease sort of trapped by the dirt and then you wash off the spork with water. And then you maybe rub the spork on your shirt and it looks clean enough and you put it in your bag and you don't use it again until the next day. And the question I have and sort of the question that my research addresses is now, five years later, how many of the bacteria that were in that soil, that, that soil that I used to clean my spork, how many of those bacteria are in my gut today? So basically, I exposed myself to these bacteria five years ago, but did they stick in my gut or not? This is really sort of the fundamental question that we want to get at. And it's important for a couple of reasons. Um, over the last 20 years, we've started to really appreciate our gut microbiome. And what that is, is that we all have a bunch of bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tract, in our small intestine, our large intestine, our colon. It turns out we have 
so many of these bacteria, we actually have as many bacteria or microbes in our gut as we do human cells. Something on the order of 100 trillion bacteria are in our bodies. So people actually have started to think about the microbiome as sort of an organ that, that lives alongside our human cell. We sort of are two beings in one, like one is the human side and the other is the bacteria side. And we have found some really cool results about how this microbiome can affect our normal way of living. And so in fruit flies, for example, which is the model organism we use to do this research, we have shown that changing the microbiomes that different fruit flies have, changing whether they have some bacteria or another bacteria in their guts, can really affect physiological properties about the flies. If we feed them bacteria A, these flies will lay one egg a day. And if we feed them bacteria B, they will lay three eggs per day. We also can change how long they live. Some flies that have bacteria A in their guts will live 20 days. Other flies that have bacteria B in their guts will live 30 days. And we can measure these properties in fruit flies. Um, and it's really pretty incredible that we can see these effects in lifespan and fecundity that are solely based on microbiome composition. The other reason that the microbiome has come into the forefront of science these days is the application for medical therapies. So for example, there's this one disease called C. diff infection, which I've studied a fair bit during my PhD. And C. diff infection happens when the pathogen C. difficile colonizes your gut. And when this occurs, it will give you really, really bad diarrhea and you do not want to have C. diff infection. And if you've had it or you know somebody who's had it, you'll know it's a nasty, nasty disease. And what makes it so difficult is it's really hard to get rid of. Normally, when you have a gut infection, doctors will prescribe you antibiotics, and the antibiotics will remove the pathogen. But C. diff, when you get C. diff infection, it's often recurrent which means even when they give you antibiotics to try to get rid of the C. diff, it doesn't work. The C. diff comes back. It has sort of defense mechanisms that allow it to evade the antibiotics. And so this has caused a lot of harm, a lot of death, especially in elderly folks, especially, especially in their care homes. But it turns out there's sort of a magic bullet almost that allows people to cure C. diff infection and it's called a fecal microbiota transplantation. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. You take fecal matter, you take poop from a healthy person, and you put it into the gut of somebody who has C. diff infection. And basically the idea is that the healthy properties of the microbes from the healthy person, their robust, strong microbial community, will sort of defeat the C. diff infection you'll take these good healthy microbes and they will outcompete in some sense the pathogen so i think of this as a type of subtraction by addition you subtract the c difficile by the addition of healthy gut microbes and so this is a really cool field and this is sort of the tip of the iceberg 
And we've been applying, scientists have been applying fecal transplants to all sorts of diseases, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. People are even finding links between the gut microbiome and the brain, the so-called gut-brain axis. And so there's this whole, you know, sort of exciting, exciting field out there, which says, basically, we understand now that the gut microbiome is linked to human health. And so that begs the question, how can we engineer the microbiome in some sort of deliberate way to help improve human health? And the research I want to present to you today is, I think, addressing some of the basic science questions that are foundational to this idea of medicine for the microbiome. So with the motivation out of the way, I'll talk a little bit more explicitly about what we found in the experimental setup. And before I dive into that, I want to say the experiments that I'm about to talk about were all performed by Will Luddington in his lab at the Carnegie Institute of Science. I'm more of a modeler. I'm more of a, I do theory and I do mathematical modeling and I do computational techniques and I do statistics. So I'm never working in the wet lab. I take the data they make, this glorious, glorious data that they have persevered to create, and I try to find patterns in it. And what Will, my colleague, and his lab mates do is they took fruit flies, these really simple things, the same flies that you would find eating your moldy cantaloupe, the same fruit flies, but they have a special way of growing these fruit flies in the lab in really sterile conditions. And in fact, they're able to make it so when these fruit flies are born, they have no bacteria in their guts. These are so-called germ-free fruit flies. They have no bacteria at all. And so that means that Will can then feed these bacteria, sorry, Will can then feed these flies their normal food, which is basically yeast, but then they mix in this yeast specific sets of bacteria. So they'll mix into this yeast a type of acetobacter species of bacteria, which are the same bacteria that are responsible for making vinegar or they will stir into this food lactobacillus species of bacteria, which are the same bacteria responsible for making yogurt or fermenting milk. And once they feed these bacteria to the flies, you can then ask, well, I know the fruit flies didn't have any bacteria to begin with, and now, 10 days after I fed them this bacteria-laced food, they have some known set of bacteria, you can ask, well, which bacteria actually stuck? Which bacteria managed to colonize and which did not? And so we can study this property of what's called microbiome assembly. This assembly of a microbiome, because you started from nothing, and then you feed known things, and you say, well, did it stick or not? And so this sort of gets back to the question that I opened with when I was talking about me backpacking, eating microbes from the dirt five years ago, and asking whether those bacteria are still in my gut today. And this question of thinking about my own microbiome is a really hard one, because I don't know what my gut microbiome looked like five years ago. I don't know really what it looks like today, and I don't know what bacteria were in the soil when I cleaned off my spork. And so it's hard to address the question in humans so far, because we just don't really understand how the colonization dynamics of 
our microbiome work yet? Instead, in this paper, we were able to use the fruit fly to really probe very delicately this question of microbiome assembly. And what we found was somewhat surprising. We found that with these flies, we could feed them a ton of bacteria, like millions and millions of bacteria in their food. And we feed it to them and they can eat it for like three, five days. And then 10 days later, we'll crush them up and we'll take their guts and we'll sort of say, well, which bacteria successfully colonized? That is, which bacteria were able to sort of embed themselves in the mucus in our gut microbiome? Which microbes stuck and were able to proliferate and make colonies in our guts to make our gut microbiome? We're able to ask which bacteria are there. And it turns out that even when we feed these flies such massive amounts of bacteria, sometimes the bacteria still don't stick. And in particular, for some of the bacteria that we were studying, we found that as much as 40% of the time, bacteria would fail to colonize for some species. So this was the first, I think, cool result that we found. Just because you give a lot of these bacteria to a fly doesn't mean they necessarily stick. There's stochasticity involved. It's stochastic microbiome assembly. Just because you're exposed to a microbe does not mean it colonizes your gut. Even when you're exposed to this microbe at a really, really high abundance. And so that sort of was the, the, one of the main results. And I think it immediately has a lot of importance when we think about these fecal microbiota transplantations, these medical therapies that we want to use to improve people's gut health. Because... If you want to give a sick person a fecal transplant, you might want to know, well, which bacteria should I put inside of this fecal transplant? And now what our study shows is that you should keep in mind when you're designing these fecal transplants that not all the bacteria you put inside of them will actually stick. And you should keep this in mind, and you should always be thinking that this assembly process is stochastic. And so you should always be thinking, well, what if all of these bacteria don't stick? Are there, are there takeaway lessons from that? So we can kind of come up with design principles for the construction of synthetic fecal microbiota transplantation. Another place where this research can be applied is thinking about probiotic administration. People have probably seen probiotics at their local drugstore. And probiotics claim to improve gut health, but one of the really tricky things about probiotics is that they don't actually stick in your gut and proliferate. They sort of work so long as you're taking one capsule a day. But as soon as you stop taking them, because none of them have stuck in your gut and begun to proliferate, their effect is lessened once you stop taking them. And so a question could be, well, how can we make these probiotics more sticky? And this is also something that, that our research can, can help address. And for example, in this one bacteria, we found something like 30% um, uh, of people who were taking some probiotic over and over again. Six months later, only in 30% of them had this probiotic actually stuck. So these are some of the applications and a brief overview of what we've done. We, we took these germ-free flies and we fed them 
specific sets of bacteria and said, well, which ones stuck and which ones didn't. And we were able to analyze these systems mathematically to study the colonization process. Um, and we found that it is stochastic and that we can actually describe it using mathematical models. So maybe I'll stop there um, and I'll just then allow people to ask questions and I'll, I'll do my best to respond to them and um, hopefully be able to reveal more details about the paper as we go. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. This was a great introduction and uh, yeah, we really appreciate your research since I think it will have so many applications. Um, yeah, so please flash your mics. Um, whoever has questions, Abyss, please go ahead. And then Eric. Uh, hey, Eric. Um, yeah, great presentation. Um, still have to go through the entire paper. Um, just like at this point, I only have access to the abstract, but I can find the paper and read it further. Um, I have a couple of questions, one from the microbiota um, aspect and the other is from modeling. Um, so for the first question, do you see sort of like interdependence of different microbiomes? Um, essentially, you mentioned something about C. diff, of course, um, um, you know, introducing a competing um, microbiome actually kind of reduces the C. diff population. But at the same time, I think like the sort of like this constellation of microbiota, which has been suggested is that um, that um, there, there's like some level of cooperation between the different gut microbiome. And do you see that happening in the fruit flies? And, and uh, I guess like the, the experimental regimen that I was thinking of was something akin to like um, um, having some specific species of uh, bacteria fed uh, into the, those fruit flies and then predicate that by another species. Um, so do you, was that the way the experiment set up, that was my, that's my kind of like the gut microbiome aspect question. The other one is from modeling. Um, I think like you, um, uh, Katarina also mentioned that you're doing some kind of high dimensional reduction, like a dimensional reduction. I'm assuming something related to um, single vector decomposition variant type, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, but I also know that um, there are um, models in the dynamic systems, like the Voltaire uh, 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 Lotka uh, model, that actually does have fair enough estimation as to like what uh, competing species would would look like, or what's the optimal strategies for competing species to exist on limited resources. So, did you use um, like can you talk about the modeling more because you know you 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 talked about the sort of like the gut microbiome aspect, but I, I was also more interested in the modeling aspect as well. Yeah, I'm done. Thank you. Yeah, totally. Uh, both really good questions. Um, and I think I should be able to answer both. So first, um, well, just in reference to finding the paper. So there is a bio archive link. It's the preprint, but it's basically unchanged from our PNAS version. And I believe that's even in an in this like clubhouse, like at the top, there's a bioarchive link. So that should have, uh, you know, you should be able to access that for free. In regards to your first question of the interdependence of microbes, maybe the way I would phrase that is in terms of ecological interactions. 
So people think a lot about in ecology, whether two species are cooperative or symbiotic, or whether they're competitive, or whether they're immensalists. Or, there are a lot of these types of ecological interactions, and um, the answer basically is yes, we do see that. And there's actually part of the paper, uh, the name of the paper is Stochastic Microbiome Assembly of the Microbiome, depends on context. So in my little preamble, I was talking about stochastic microbiome assembly, but what you're talking about really gets at the depends on context part. And basically, yes, there's we, we can see clearly um, in the way that we've set up these experiments, this context dependence or these interactions. And so more specifically, what we can do is we can take the flies and we can feed them some bacteria A. And by the way, this is just maybe my inner physicist coming through, but I always talk about bacteria as just some bacteria A rather than the exact species, which is like Lactobacillus plantarum. And so I'll talk about species A. Um, you flashed your mic. Does that mean that you want to comment right now? Oh, uh, that's, um, uh, that's a clubhouse thing for applauding. Um, don't let me interrupt you. <laughs> so when you oh, see a person flashing their mics, it's just like they're probably agreeing with you. Just like what I was doing right now. Or, or they're having some sort of nervous breakdown or something else. But it's safe to assume it's just clapping. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Thank you. Yeah, as I said, I'm quite a newbie here. Okay, so what we'll do to study these microbial interactions is we'll feed some set of flies only microbe A. And then we'll feed other flies both microbes A and B. And we'll basically say, what were the odds that species A colonized, given that it was fed, relative to the odds it colonized when bacteria B was fed as well? So we're sort of working with the marginal probability, the probability that A colonized given B was fed, and comparing that to the probability that A colonized in total. And what this reveals is from the structure, this presence-absence structure, Right, just whether or not the bacteria colonized or not, we're able to infer these ecological interactions. And what we find is that acetobacter species, these are the bacteria that make acetic acid or vinegar, these acetobacter species are facilitated by the presence of lactobacter species. These acetobacter species colonize more often when they're fed alongside lactobacter species. And conversely, these acetobacter species colonize less frequently when they're fed alongside other acetobacter species. So we see for this one bacterial genus, both facilitative and competitive interactions. And this is actually one of the things we're really excited about this paper, is that we're able to infer these ecological interactions based only on this presence-absence data. A lot of the time in ecology, people infer interactions based on time series data. That is, you have, you know, you sample once a day for 10 days, and you look at how one bacterial population co-varies with another. This is different. This is only looking at presence-absence data, and yet we're even still able to infer the presence of these bacterial interactions. Um, and this is just from the data. Then we have some speculation that I think is fairly legitimate about what chemical, what biochemical processes are underlying these interactions. 
which I can get into later if people want. But for now, I'll just answer your first question by saying, yes, we can see the presence of these interdependence of this facilitation and competition of one bacterial species on another. To your second question, you were talking about modeling, which is actually quite close to my heart. So what I've been talking about with the stochastic microbiome assembly process is really like experimental data. Let's analyze it. In much of my PhD work, what I was doing was doing mathematical modeling of ecological systems. And exactly as you specified, the Lotka-Volterra, the generalized Lotka-Volterra equations are what I've worked with a lot. And when I mentioned sort of the previous work that I've done studying C. diff infection, that was done exactly using a generalized Lotka-Volterra model, which is a set of coupled differential equations that study the, how the abundances of different microbial species change in time. I've been studying the C. diff infection system using data um, that was collected by scientists at Sloan Kettering University in a mouse gut model of C. diff infection. And so there, um, I will say, I did not use any generalized like Volterra modeling for this paper. But in general, I do have developed in the past a dimensionality reduction technique called steady state reduction that basically says, well, you know, Maybe the microbiome is really complex and, you know, the GLV system for C. diff infection that I studied has like 11 different variables that are all changing in time, corresponding to different microbial species. But like 11 variables, that's a lot. Like thinking about 11 dimensional dynamics is pretty hard to do. And so instead, I devised a method where instead of that, you can think about just the steady states themselves. Basically, the system had steady states that you can look at them and say, oh, well, that's like a healthy gut in another steady state where you look at it and you say, well, that's a C. diff infected gut. And you can actually think about transitions between these steady states in a two-dimensional generalized Lotka-Volterra system. You, you can think about a two-dimensional system that approximates the high-dimensional 11D GLV generalized Lotka-Volterra dynamics. So it is, it's a little bit different than the, uh, you know, principal component analysis types of things that you were talking about. Um, I would love to talk more about it in general, um, you know, but, but that, that was not particularly um, relevant for this paper. The modeling in this paper, I would say, rather than relying on generalized lockable terror systems, I would call what we did in this paper more of a ground up or first principles modeling. Basically taking the data that we have and saying, okay, given this data that the experimental was provided for us, starting from scratch, what can we do? And I think we were able to come up with a fairly um, reasonable mechanistic model, basically that um, treating the, the colonization of multiple species of bacteria as independent random processes. Um, we were able to devise this sort of bottom-up method it does a pretty good job of modeling what we actually find in experiments. Okay, so that's the end of my second second response. Yeah, great questions, thank you. Uh, I think Eric was next with the question. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I, I'm also Eric, but uh, too many Eric's on here, so I had to uh, be sufficiently unique to avo avoid confusion, and still it happens. Um, but uh, my, my question was, um, so, so I've done similar modeling with uh, 
like neurochemical networks, coupled differential equations, uh, these kind of complex systems. And the steady state uh, assumption uh, was only true for very long periods of time. So uh, I was curious what that timeline uh, was here for where you saw that your model kind of maybe coincided with that kind of uh, assumption or not. And uh, se second kind of a smaller question was, well, were there any situations where you saw that um, there was a non-trivial interaction that you didn't necessarily discover in your original assumption, but yet showed that the two, the presence of both of these bacteria, for example, or whatever motif it ends up being, uh, that that ended up promoting uh, their survivability, as it were. Um. Yeah. Um, okay, so for the first question, um, dealing with the steady state. Yeah, so again, because we're not dealing with any sort of generalized lockable terrorist system, um, we don't need to, like, we're, we're not dealing with steady states in, like, the mathematical T goes to infinity equilibrium type of sense. What I can talk about in terms of the experimental design, and I think probably what you're getting at, is that the experiments we ran were 10 days long, and you want to be confident that had we stopped on day 8 or day 12, our results would not be terribly different. Precisely. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, we're pretty confident in that, basically based, uh, for the most part, based on prior experiments that were done in 2017, again by Will Ludington, where they, for a bacteria, right, that colonizes 70% of the time, you can basically run different samples and have some of the samples end on day eight and others end on day 10 and others end on day 12. And across these three different experiments, look at the probability of colonization, the colonization odds for this bacteria. And what we've done is we've done experiments like this and looked at the colonization odds and said, okay, yeah, these look pretty similar. Um, and so we'll, we'll call this a steady state. Um, even more so, so even beyond just this presence-absence data, um, what Will has also done is look at the abundances over time, and we find that the abundances over time also become uh, basically steady state after um, 10 days as well. So we're pretty confident that um, the experimental setup we have has indeed um, um, found uh, that, that we are working at steady state. And then the last thing that I'll mention is there is another set of experiments that we did that also sort of drive this point home, where in some of them, we only feed the flies bacteria once on day one, and then the subsequent feedings were using germ-free food. And alternatively, we have another set of experiments where we feed them bacteria every day until the end. Um, and again, in these two conditions, we don't see great variation in either colonization odds or the abundance. So um, yes, we, we, were, we did take care to make sure um, that, that our results were not sensitive to this 10-day deadline that we uh, chose. Okay, awesome. Thank you. That was uh, very extensive as an answer and exactly touched upon uh, what I was curious about or suspicious of. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then to your other point about the whether we saw bacteria that sort of facilitated each other's presence, um, so by default, we had no prior expectations, like, you know, a priori, we didn't know whether or not there is going to be, uh, any sort of interactions, uh, in, I'll just point again to this facilitation that we found 
the, sorry, the facilitation of colonization of Acetobacter species when Lactobacillus species are fed alongside. So that's something we found. And then just to sort of add on to this, I want to mention another cool sort of um, consequence of this result, which might be relevant for microbiome transmission. So if you can imagine you have these sort of blocks of species that all facilitate each other's colonization, you could imagine when a parent has an offspring that the microbiome in the parent, those bacteria that facilitate each other will be more likely to be colonized by the offspring. And so by using this sort of train of thought, one could imagine that these interactions actually play a fairly large role for the inheritance or succession of microbiomes. Um, either you could think about microbiome transmission between individuals or inheritance from, from parent to offspring. Um, but yeah, that's, that's also um, how I'll respond to your, your second question. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Frank, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so thanks, Eric, for the, for the, for the talk. It's very interesting. Uh, I have no background in uh, biology, but I, I would like to ask, uh, I hope I didn't miss anything. I would like to ask two questions. The first one is like, can you uh, elaborate on, uh, you know, the word like uh, statistic? Did you mean uh, that it was a truly random process, uh, you know, where the fact that a bacteria stick or, you know, fail to stick is, is a truly, truly random process? or there are things that we, we don't understand yet and you haven't studied yet? That's the first question. And the second question is, like you mentioned, that you know, there's like a hundred trillions uh, bacteria in, in the in human gut uh, or something like that. Um, w you know, is there, is there any hope that we will ever understand uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the the, 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 you know, the gut micro, microbiome in, inside a human. Uh, and, but, and if not, you know, what would be the approach that you think uh, should be taken? Thank you. Great. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, again, you, you all are asking very good questions, so this is great. Um, to your first question, is this a truly random process? No, I would say not. Um, and I think this is, it seems really like this question maybe a physicist would ask. And um, it's true. It's not truly random, but really what it is, is it's saying that at the, at the level at which we coarse grain, right, which is, uh, which is set, which is fixed, which is constrained by our experimental setup, at that level, all we know is you feed the flies the same bacteria, and we do so in as homogeneous a way as we can. We take these flies, they're genetically identical, they're housed in the same way, they're raised in the same way, they're fed food in the same way. We try to cons constrain all of these things, and yet we see these variable colonization outcomes. So when I say stochastic, I mean sort of coarse-grained at that level. Definitely, though, if we had a finer resolution, if we are able to have, you know, some super special microscope and go 200 years in the future, I think we would be able to look at this and to have a great more deal of accuracy and being able to predict, well, this one microbe will not colonize and this one microbe will colonize. 
because we'll understand all of the microscopic effects and the microscopic interactions that lead to colonization or failure to colonize. I think, and this is also sort of what you alluded to, one of the really cool things our study has done is to motivate investigation of the biochemical, the microscopic biochemical um, mechanisms through which colonization happens. And this is something that we don't really know yet. We don't really know why some bacteria are stickier than others. We think it probably has something to do with the mucus layer. We think maybe it has something to do with the proteins that are on the surface of the bacteria. But these are frankly open questions that we don't know yet. And I think as we can study these questions more and more, we'll gain a great deal of insight into the measurements that we have today. I think we'll be able to say, oh, well, we saw this bacteria colonize 60% of the time, and that's because of reasons A, B, and C. So that's my first question. No, it's not truly random, but at the level at which we perceive it, it is effectively random at this coarse-grained level. Okay, so it's like subject to further investigation. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this is, I would say, a, a jumping-off point, if anything, um, because... You know, again, thinking in terms of applications, if we could understand why some bacteria are sticky and others are not, and if we had some type of microbe in a fecal transplant that we really want to colonize, then maybe we could apply lessons we've learned in how some microbes are sticky and others are not, and we could take those lessons and modify the bacteria we want to colonize so that the bacteria we want to colonize is more sticky. Right. So this is the sort of um, these are often the types of innovations that I think basic science research can provide. As for your second question, um, alluding to, yeah, just the, the vastness of the human microbiome, 100 trillion bacteria. Um, uh, yeah, a thousand species or, or sorry, a, a thousand, uh, a thousand species of microbe or more. Will we ever truly understand it all the way? I'm not sure. I would sort of guess probably not. Can we understand it at a operational level where we can start to design personalized therapeutics that can help people's gut health? I think quite possibly. Um, I think we're definitely not there yet, but I, I have a few pieces of evidence, I guess, for, for why I'm optimistic. One is that we're finding that the microbiome is not sort of as random as we thought. There do appear to be general constructs that help guide the microbial dynamics that occur. For example, if you look at the functions the different bacteria play, maybe you have some species are more common on one day and other species are more common on another day. But if you look at the functions that are performed, you know, helping with metabolism of some particular protein or something, the functional roles of the microbiome is fairly constant over time, even though the species abundance of these different bacteria are more variable. So there do appear to be some general laws, if you like, of microbial dynamics that appear to be followed. And I think as we decipher what these are more and more, I think, yeah, perhaps we can use these laws to help us um, to chart a path forward into being able to predict and engineer the microbiome. But certainly not yet. 
and probably never will we be able to do this perfectly. Um, but yeah, I, I do definitely enjoy thinking about these sort of futuristic, uh, futuristic types of questions. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the answers. Very, very interesting. And I hope there will be new results, you know, uh, in the future. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, thanks, uh, uh, Dr. Jones, for uh, sharing with us your very interesting uh, research. And uh, I think Tuan asked uh, uh, questions that uh, I'm also interested in uh, uh, learning uh, more uh, uh, of your answer, i.e. the, uh, the uh, biochemical chem uh, underlying mechanisms. The also, you, uh, I remember you referred earlier to uh, say uh, currently we have two types of uh, uh, say A and B uh, micro microbes, and uh, they are. I mean, the way of course, I mean, uh, one factor, one possibility is they are actually interbreed. I think you somehow you refer to that there's also probably you know uh factors that they play with with the host or you know there's seem to be a, a, a multi uh variable like uh, 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 uh situation right so whether it's competing for uh, for resources or interacting with the host yeah so i think as you answered earlier this still ongoing uh, research I think still, I mean, uh, if you can give a few like a uh, rule of thumb, which one, which factor is actually more important, uh, should give uh, priority to. That's my first uh, question. And then uh, my second question is that uh, I understand that, uh, I mean, just a curiosity on the, you mean the bio uh, uh, hygiene, micro, microbio like hygiene for human, the guts. Uh, uh, how long the uh, one, you know, uh, there's a various, various dynamics. Is, is, it, uh, is there a particular time scale that uh, we, uh, our micro ropes with us, like, will be flushed, uh, uh, will be refreshed in a way? I'm just curious for a very general question. Great. Yeah. Uh, varied questions again. Um, so maybe to your first point about thinking about the mechanisms that give rise to these context-dependent colonization odds, as we call them, this fact that the colonization of some species of microbe is affected by the presence of other species of microbes. So I think we have some hypotheses about what the mechanism for this is. We think that it's happening um, due to maybe two effects. First, you can have what are called priority effects, which is basically we feed a fly two types of species of bacteria at the same time, and only one of those species colonizes the gut. But then, you know, the food has splattered on the ground or something, and then a day later, the fly eats the food again, the fly is exposed to both types of species again, 
But one of those species was already present in their gut now. One of those species has already gained a foothold. And so you can have priority effects occur in which this the primary microbe, the first microbe that colonized, will alter its environment to either facilitate or inhibit the colonization of the secondary microbe. So that's one mechanism with which these interactions can occur. And uh, we're working on a secondary project right now, sort of looking at this in more detail where we, we study these priority effects. But so that's one way for these context-dependent interactions to occur. Another thing that can be happening is that that there are interactions going on between the bacteria in the food itself. So as I said, these flies eat this yeast food, which is inoculated with certain types of bacteria. And so it's possible that even in that process, right after the bacteria are put into the food, which is then fed to the fly, while the bacteria are in this food, or even while this food is being digested in the fly, within this yeast, the bacteria are interacting. They are, and we, we think one of the key ways in which they interact is by modifying the pH, because these are lactic acid and acetic acid bacteria. So both of them are making their environment more acidic. And if you do this too much, you can actually, uh, it'll be to the bacteria's detriment. So that's definitely another way in which these interactions can be mediated by is by modification of the pH. Um, you also mentioned this idea that, like, yeah, it's pretty complicated that the host can play a role, and I absolutely agree with that. Right now, we have not at all probed microbe-host interactions. We know that flies have an immune system. And this immune system, there are, there are interactions between the immune system and microbiome colonization that, again, we just we cannot study based on the experimental setup that we have. What I think we can do, and what's a fairly powerful um, thing that we can do, is by making our mathematical models, we make them falsifiable. And so we basically say, I'm going to load up these ingredients into my model. And then we can ask, well, how many of the experimental observations, how much of the data are we able to successfully predict? And in the extreme case, where we're able to predict 100% you know, of the data with our basic model, well, then maybe that would be an indication that we didn't actually need to take into account the immune system and the microbe immune interactions. Of course, in our paper, we didn't find that at all. In the best case, we found that we were able to predict about 24 out of 31 experimental data points uh, or experimental combinations. We were able to predict about 75% of the time within some degree of, um, within some degree of uh, variation. We were able to predict about 75% of the data. And so what that sort of tells me is that, you know, I think about it almost in terms of like an R squared. It's like, what? part of the data can we explain with this basic model? And if we were able to explain 75% of the data with this basic model, well, that would indicate this would bound, in a sense, the effect that taking into account immune microbiome interactions can play, right? If we only, if we can explain 75% of the data with our basic model, then that would say at most we can explain 25% of the remaining data 
by taking into account the immune system. So by having these falsifiable models, we really do gain this great ability to um, yeah, be hypothesis driven. Say, all right, now we'll consider a more complex model that takes into account the immune system. What can we do from there? So I think this is just like a really cool scientific practice that's becoming more and more common. And especially, I would say in large part, is driven by ecology in, in research in ecology over the past hundred years of thinking about likelihoods and thinking about the probability and, and really a Bayesian approach of thinking about the probability of creating the data with a given model, of observing the, the observed data with a given model. So that's my response to your first question. In response to your second question about thinking about um, the time scale at which the microbiome changes, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say, I think what, what people generally agree upon is that your microbiome is quite a bit in flux over the first few years. So in humans, maybe years zero through three, your microbiome is changing a lot. But by about year three, it stays fairly fixed, especially if you look not at the species abundances, but if you look at the abundances of different genera of bacteria. The abundances, your, your microbiome composition coarse-grained at the genus level is pretty steady in time. It doesn't change very much. And um, of course, there are exceptions. And one of the big exceptions is following antibiotic administration. So you can look at somebody's microbiome and it'll be pretty steady over time until they take antibiotics. And then this is just a really large scale event that modifies your microbiota composition. And then after that, there'll be some sort of recovery perhaps to your initial state. Or sometimes, and this is actually how C. diff infection happens, but sometimes after you take antibiotics, your microbiome will get pushed to some depleted state, some vulnerable state at which a pathogen like C. diff will be able to invade and take over and give you C. diff infection. So, but in general, assuming you're living, you know, a standard healthy lifestyle, your diet's not changing very much, um, your microbiome composition can be relatively static. Um, perpetually, so long as you don't uh, make any major shifts, shifts to your lifestyle. Uh, thank you. That's a very informative. Thanks. Can I ask if, if your microbiome is generally static, if you have like a tendency to um, get a C. diff infection, does that mean that you can expect that tendency for the rest of your life? Mm, yeah, so this really gets at this question of recurrent C. diff infection, which is unfortunately for a lot of people, um, yeah, that's what they get. So you'll have people that like had C. diff and then they took some C. diff specific antibiotics and they got rid of C. diff or so they thought, but then the C. diff comes back five or 10 years later. So the answer is basically, yes, you do have these people that are sort of caught in this vulnerable state, um, and it's really hard to get out of, which is, again, I think why like fecal transplants are such a really cool therapy, because what they do is they take your gut microbiome that was stuck in this vulnerable state, and they just sort of forcibly shift it out of it. They push it into some healthier state, you know, probably more similar to the microbiome of the donor of the fecal transplant, who presumably you would choose um, to be somebody with a healthy gut microbiome. 
Um, but yeah, great question. I, I think, yes, for people who have C. diff infection, recurrent C. diff infection is common. Yeah, uh, yeah I just uh, wanted to ask a question. Don't really um, have much of a biological background. Uh, but in the thing, it shows that uh, the experiments were conducted on uh, fruit flies. So was there a specific reason for choosing fruit flies? Yeah, very good question. Uh, basically, it's because they're simple. Because in humans, we have something like a thousand species of bacteria in our guts at any given time. We have something like a hundred trillion bacteria in our guts at any given time. Whereas in fruit flies, they really tend to have something like five to ten species in their guts at any given time uh, and on the order of a few million bacteria. And so comparatively, the fruit flies are just so much simpler that we can really do a lot of investigation on them. So I think that's the, the really big reason why we used fruit flies is because their microbiome is simple enough that we can actually get our heads around them. We can really think about what's going on. Uh, furthermore, and this wasn't super relevant for our current study, but potentially for follow-up studies, is that the scientific community has spent a lot of time studying fruit flies. So we just know a lot about them. They're called model organisms. And for example, we know how to modify their DNA to make specific types of mutant fruit flies. I don't like, and so I mean by mutant, you know, you can make it so they have uh, flies that don't produce flies that don't produce mucus in their guts. Or you can make fruit flies that, um, you know, don't live as long or fruit flies that have 10 legs instead of six or something. So you can make all of these modifications to fruit flies so that right now we sort of find what we find. But then you can imagine a second experiment where you take a fruit fly that doesn't have the ability to produce mucus and you run the same experiments and you say, well, this time we found the colonization odds of the bacteria are so-and-so. And by being able to compare these different strains of fruit flies, we would be able to learn even more information about mechanism. Um, but yeah, so those are a few ex few reasons for why we chose to use the fruit fly. Uh, and then lastly, they're just really easy to deal with in a lab. Um, we can grow a bunch of them. We know how to grow them. Um, well, I say uh, we know how. Really, my collaborator, Will Luddington, knows very well how to how to work with fruit flies um and they're just a pretty accessible experimental tool uh well thank you for that um sort of had a follow-up question on it so as you mentioned so for this experiment were they just considered to be the ones who were producing the mucus or was it uh considered to be some that had specific number of legs or uh, some kind of other specification that they had yeah so all of these fruit flies were just the normal ones um, so these were all totally normal. I was mostly just mentioning like in follow-up experiments, maybe we could try a mutant and that would tell us a little bit more. But for this experiment, yeah, they were all normal fruit flies, uh, totally normal mucus production, you know, all the rest. Okay, thank you for that. So, thank you, Gatorina. I, I so I do have a follow-up on this. Yeah. On the, oh, sorry. Um, so... Um, we know that um, flies actually, in fact, most insects have open circulatory systems and they do have uh, hemolymph instead of um, hemoglobin. 
So um, I know this is not probably like your area of expertise, but do you, do you or any of your collaborators kind of shed light into how the uh, the gut brain interaction works with with insects that don't have that that have like like I said, open circulatory system as opposed to ours? Is there floating theories to how that happens? Hmm. Um, I did not know um, about that that difference. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I can't really answer that question. I definitely think microbiome immune interactions are very interesting and relevant, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, at this point, I, I can't answer. Uh, actually, I also have a related question. So, uh, is there is there any like if you want to study a bit more complex, uh, uh, you know, complex or or organism than the the fruit fly, what would be the you know that one? And and is there any plan to move, uh, you know, to to make study on them in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the next sort of natural model organism that's a little bit more complex would be the mouse. So people have already been studying the mouse microbiome fairly extensively. I mentioned this previous work I did studying C. diff infection, which was based on a mouse microbiome experiment. And uh, mice are, you can, I'm pretty sure it, you can breed them germ-free. So again, you can make it so they only have, so they bore, they're born without a microbiome, and then you can inoculate them with specific sets of bacteria. Um, so I think the mouse microbiome would be the next step to sort of, um, if we wanted to raise the level of complexity. Um, and I could imagine over the next few years starting to move in that direction. Although honestly, I feel like there's still a lot to be um, uh, sucked out of this fly system. You know, there, there's a lot of information that, that we can still find with these, these fly experiments. Um, but yeah, definitely in the future, I think, and, and already today, there are lots of great microbiome scientists studying the vast microbiome. That would be the place to look. I see. I see. Okay. But then, like, usually after the mice, uh, what, would, what could be after them? It's like a uh, pig or something or, or straight to human? Uh, or... Yeah, good question. Uh, <laughs> this is probably better for um, people that you know, really work in the clinical side of thing of trying to do the transition from basic science to human interventions. Um, I mean, I do know at some point, you know, people will study sort of like monkey microbiomes because monkeys are, uh, or primates are going to be awfully similar to uh, the way humans interact with their microbiomes. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an intermediate like the pig between that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. So I don't think I can speak to that. I see. I see. Okay. Just one last question. Do you have? I'm sorry. Excuse me. Can we um, give other people that didn't have a chance yet uh, to speak? And Eric, I wanted to check in with you. How much time you still have have available? Like, because you have been talking for an hour, so I, I'm just checking in with you. Um, for right now, I mean, I'm still happy to talk. I'm really enjoying this conversation. So. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to stick around for now. Great. 
So uh, I think Dr. Shah, you flashed yes, your mic. Thank you so much, Katerina. So Eric, that was very wonderful. I mean, presentation and uh, you answer some of my questions. And also we know that we have a FMT, uh, I mean, for the cancer therapy for some of the patients that they are not respond very well to the, I mean, immunotherapy that they are using this technique. So the question that I have you, I mean, you talk about assembly of data. What type of data we are talking about? And uh, for the assembly, are you, I mean, just correct me. What do you mean by assembly the data? It means that you have a, I mean, the gene reference, you do alignment or you do mapping and then assembly the data. I'm not sure about this part. If you have any explanation around that, I would be happy to listen. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing up the application of fecal transplants to cancer immunotherapy. Um, I'll just maybe, I'm sure you're aware of this, but I'll just mention to the audience this really cool application, right? Because to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of cancer patients will undergo immunotherapy, which really depletes their immune system. But what they'll do instead is before they undergo immunotherapy, they will take their stool, they will poop, and they will freeze it. And they will freeze it until their immunotherapy is done. And at that point, their immune system is depleted. But then you give them a fecal transplant with their own poop, with their own fecal matter, a so-called autologous fecal transplant. And what this does is then you get your microbiome back quickly, and your microbiome really facilitates your immune response. And so you're able to sort of jumpstart your immune response with this fecal transplant, and then that helps you recover from the immunotherapy better. And so, yeah, I think we have, I think there are studies showing conclusively that these autologous fecal transplants can improve patient outcomes um, who undergo immunotherapy. So, yeah, absolutely really cool application of FMT. Um, as for assembly, um, so it seems like uh, maybe what you were talking about sounds a little bit more on the bioinformatics side than I'm working. Um, so when I'm talking about microbiome assembly, I'm basically just thinking, about some ecological community. And it starts off with zero species. And then eventually you get to an individual who has a microbiome with a bunch of species. And all I mean by assembly is how did you go from that blank, from that empty microbiome to that full microbiome? In what order did that happen? Um, which bacteria uh, in, in the fruit fly specifically, you know, were able to look at the variation in colonization outcomes. So, uh, you know, we could say, well, I have five bacteria that I feed to a fly, and that means there are a bunch of different outcomes that can happen. And for each of these different outcomes, I would say there's a different assembly process, um, a different way in which you go from a germ-free microbiome to a microbiome that contains sub -su some subset of the bacteria that you fed. So strictly just like, you know, who is there, who isn't there, when did that happen? That's what I mean by assembly rather than any sort of like gene sequencing alignment, which is, I think, maybe what you were referring to. That that assembly sounds more like something you would do with like 16-SR RNA data, which is not really at all what, what you're doing in these experiments. But yeah, happy to answer any follow-up. Exactly, Eric. Thank you. Uh, I would say that the uh, there is one caveat there, that the microbiome population distributions before treatment may actually be a contributing factor to the development 
of the cancer in the first place. So I had my microbiome, for example, uh, my stool culture sequenced, and it found that I only had something like 72% coverage of what was normally or defined as a roughly healthy uh, bacteria population. So if I had uh, taken that, that wouldn't have necessarily uh, promoted, uh, I guess, a, a good immune response. In fact, it could have caused the very same problem that emerged in the first place, not to say that that was the only contributing factor. So just a, a note there. Yeah, that's fair. And maybe even following up, I think something that I, I neglected to mention of sort of why these autologous fecal transplants are effective is that um, in conjunction with immunotherapy, because your immune system is so depleted, often you'll be prescribed a bunch of antibiotics as well. And so these will deplete your microbiome. Um, and, and so that's sort of, I think, you know, your microbiome is depleted and your immune system is depleted, and it's hard to bounce back from both of those depletions. And so an autologous FMT will have at least one of them. Um, though certainly I see your point that like, yeah, if you're getting a fecal transplant with a bad microbiome already, what's the benefit? And I think that's definitely something um, that we don't fully understand yet, you know, um, right now our sort of the way that we get fecal transplants is really sort of like case by case. It's like, oh yeah, are you healthy? Do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you have any gut illnesses? No? Okay, great. You're probably are a great candidate for a fecal transplant donor. Um, but, but I think they're really more like mechanistic questions. I think something that we'll do in the future is get better at really identifying like, oh, you are a super donor and we know this because of reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, but I would agree that we certainly don't yet know which donors will be effective and which ones will not be. Hi, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. hi, Katarina. Is it okay if I speak? Yes, yeah, go ahead. Okay, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to ask a question. Um, thanks, Eric, for this fascinating um, discussion. I apologize that I arrived a bit late, but I did have a quick chance to look at the paper. So um, I'm just curious about something. So one thing I noted in the uh, I noticed in the paper is that um, the way that the flies were procured, um, they were um, they were, it was through a crushed mechanism, right? And then put onto the, um, uh, onto the auger for colony forming units. And I'm just curious if, um, you know, one of the things that you brought up is this differential that occurred, right? This predictive model of 75% versus 25%. And I know, so I come from a genomics background and I know when we study the fly gut, um, we typically uh, dissect it. I mean, we can do bulk, um, but bulk is um, is usually reserved for very specific types of circumstances. Like we're looking, you know, we're looking very holistically, um, which I'm guessing was the point of your study. But I definitely think that um, doing dissections on these flies would be really interesting to see what differential you might be able to predict just by pulling out the specific guts. Because sometimes these flies, it can be very difficult to get every little bit out, especially if you're trying to do um, these very sensitive assays. Um, so that was the first thing. And the second thing I wanted to mention is that um, 
you know, aging in flies is a really known phenomenon. So I'm curious also if you had, um, it, it looked to me like the flies were all aged equally, but I'm curious if you were going to look at aging. And those are my two comments. Thank you. Yeah, again, uh, really excellent questions. Um, so to your first point about sort of a dissection of the fly gut versus this bulk, um, the short answer is we, we did the just crushing of the fly guts because it allows us to do higher throughput experiments. Um, for this uh, experiment, we had 31 combinations of bacteria. So we have five core bacterial species we study. There are 31 possible presence-absence configurations of those five bacteria. And for each of those 31 combinations, we have 48 fly replicates. So that's on the order of 1,200 flies. Um, that are uh, sacrificed in order to gain this presence-absence data, and um, it's hard to dissect them. I will note, maybe as a teaser, um, there's actually a really nice paper coming out that was led by Ren Dodge of Will Leddington's group, where he actually does do these microdissections of the fly, and then he does microscopy. And what we can actually see is spatially localized colonization. So we can look in the fly gut, especially at the crop, and we can see these different bacteria colonizing. This paper is out on BioArchive. Really, really cool stuff. So um, yeah, it definitely does reveal extra information. However, I think that our method of sort of just crushing up the flies does do a good enough job. And the main reason is that I don't think, the main reason that I think it's fine is that our measurements are not actually that sensitive. Because we're looking at the presence absence of bacteria, Basically, that means we're looking for bacteria that have both colonized and begun to proliferate. And so when we do this, um, those bacteria that have begun to proliferate are going to have abundances on the order of 100,000 CFUs. And so that means that we're going to definitely be able to detect them. And uh, there's a supplementary figure in the paper where we actually look at the abundances of these different types of species relative to the limit of detection. I believe our limit of detection is something like 50 or maybe 100 CFUs. And all of the minimum abundances that we see in the flies are like at least two orders of magnitude higher than this. So it's definitely possible, you know, maybe some slip through the cracks where there was like a colony that had just begun to grow or something that we missed. But um, based, on, based on that supplementary figure, I think that's not very likely. Um, to your second question about aging in flies, uh, just yes, we did make sure that these flies were similarly aged. Um, and I definitely think it's an interesting question thinking about aging in flies. I'll mention a previous study that I worked on with Will, um, I think published in 2019. Um, and that was looking at how different microbiome compositions actually affect physiological characteristics. And one of them is that we did, one of those characteristics that we looked at was aging. So I think we found that you can change the average length of a fly's life by something like five or six days, just solely based on which bacteria it's colonized with. Um, so we definitely do see that effect, although we didn't study it further in this paper. Thanks so much. I think um, I think it's a really exciting um, uh, work that you're doing, and uh, I look forward to seeing the the papers. Can I ask a question now? So, uh, uh, yeah, so I have a related question. 
uh, not really related, but uh, like given the flies, you know, uh, uh, symbol, and we have been working with them for a long time. Is there any effort, you know, uh, ongoing to build computer model uh, to actually model them, or or is it still too much uh, our our ability currently? Um. So I mean, in some sense, I would say the the model that I develop in this paper is meant to, you know, to model the acquisition of a gut microbiome in the fruit fly. If you're thinking about like, you know, a more all-encompassing model where it's a model that can track, you know, how the fly will move and how the fly will eat and how the fly will make decisions and how the fly will accumulate a microbiome and like all of that at once. I think that's, pretty far into the future still to have sort of like a fully cybernetic fly or something that you can do truly in silico experiments on. I think for that, probably it's better to look at C. elegans, which is a worm and much simpler. And there, I think we have much, a much better understanding of pretty much everything in it. Like, for example, we've even, I believe, mapped out its neurons, for example, and we know which neurons are motor neurons and, um, and so forth. And so I think if you wanted to really have a full, like, if you wanted to model the entirety of a model organism, I think probably C. elegans would be a better place to look than Drosophila. Um, yeah, so that's what I can say uh, for that. I, I see. Okay, so we will be continue to work with, like, real flies for a long time. Yes, that would be my expectation. Okay, okay, thanks. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, uh, or as far as I'm aware, uh, the simulation capabilities kind of top out at one cell if we're talking about high fidelity. So uh, to talk about millions or, or trillions of cells, it's we're quite, quite a way off. I had a very simple question if um, nobody wants to ask. Um, yeah, sort of coming to the fruit flies, uh, you mentioned a point where uh, their dig uh, the dissection part happened. So uh, just out of curiosity, I wanted to know, so the dissection, does that occur, does that happen with um, by hand as in under the microscope? Or uh, is there a computer controlled machine with the help of AI that conducts those um, very minor dissections? Um, the micro dissections I was referring to were performed by hand by Ren Dodge, who works in the, the lab of Will Luddington at Carnegie Institute for Science. Um, and I think it's basically like, it's incredibly hard to do. It's like your success rate is like three out of a hundred, but you just do it to a hundred flies and then you, you know, are able to do it successfully for, for three. Oh, uh, I guess this was actually for a crop dissection. So this was done to living flies you sort of do microsurgery to cut out their crop and then cauterize it and then they're able to still go on living um, i think if you just wanted to get their gut microbiome i, I would imagine that's quite a bit easier um, you know more like a 90 percent success rate um, but i've never done it i've you know hardly stepped foot in a wet lab so definitely other people here are probably better suited to answer that question than me Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. People who do these micro dissections on fly guts, they can do probably in a normal work day, they can probably do around 500 of them in a day. 
um, with taking normal breaks. So it's possible. Yeah, I don't know. It should get really hard for them uh, doing those. I, I get that the progress rate will be really slow doing those minute dissections. But it would be really better if uh, some kind of computer model is prepared and then it'll be like much faster. Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, just sort of hard to do uh, yeah, with the fidelity of real biological systems, but definitely uh, something to, to strive for. Uh, Katarina, how about uh, how about at seven thirty? We call it. Does that does that work? And then we can give maybe people uh, ten more minutes to ask their final questions. Yes, that's perfect. Thank you, Eric. Uh, yeah. So please, everyone, go ahead uh, to ask your few last questions. Um, you know, whoever didn't have um opportunity to speak yet please go ahead anyone in the audience please raise your hand uh you know you have the final minutes to ask a question i was curious what uh, where do you see this uh, work heading to next if you if you were to uh, look at the results as promising what are some of the experiments that you're thinking about doing next and uh, but if anyone has any other kind of more peculiar questions or something more about the talk that was given, then uh, I defer to them. Yeah, uh, I think there are a lot of really avenues that have opened up that are cool to think about. Um, one of them is so far we've been talking about sort of which species managed to colonize and which ones didn't. And one sort of natural question is like, okay, we can predict which species will colonize. Can we also predict what their abundances will be? Um, I think that's a, that's a question that, that one can answer. There are questions about the more microscopic mechanisms, like what is it that makes a bacteria sticky versus not sticky? I think really understanding you know, that functionality is really alluring. I think we can dig a lot more into the separation. I sort of mentioned two possible ways that these interactions, uh, two ways by which these interactions could occur either interactions within the food as the food containing bacteria is digested versus via priority effects where one bacteria colonized first. So we're having some experiments done right now that allow us to really probe that where we feed only one bacteria one day and then we wait a little bit and then we feed a second bacteria. So we can be sort of sure that the interactions happening are because one species colonized first. Um, and then the, maybe the last thing that I'll mention is sort of related to this other work that I, that I mentioned led by Ren Dodge. But right now I sort of just talked about colonization like as a whole. But actually colonization happens at a specific location, right? There's the spatial distribution of bacteria along the fly gut, where in the fly gut these species colonize is really important. And so here I've sort of talked about these, what I would call top down, of sort of saying we fed bacteria A, how often did it colonize? But we have some other models of sort of the bottom up method, where we look at sort of the available niches in the fly gut. We say, well, where spatially could the bacteria colonize? And then based on that, we're actually able to come up with models of uh, colonization probability of these different species. So these sort of top-down and bottom-up methods that hopefully will give us the same answers in the middle. Um, that's, I think, what I'm really excited about in trying to just continue working on 
developing mathematical methods and mathematical models um, that sort of uh, clarify this colonization process. So would you see yourself going back to the um, steady state kind of coupled uh, systems uh, approach or are you considering some other unique method? Uh, so I definitely would love to eventually apply my previous work studying like these proper ecological models, generalized lackable terra models to the fruit fly microbiome. Um, I think it's not totally clear yet as to, uh, as to how that that's something that I've really, you know, learned a lot by working at this is just the, the level abstract, the level of abstraction at which typical ecological models work relative to sort of the reality that you see in experiments. They're really a world apart in trying to bridge that gap. Um, you know, I've been trying to do it for uh, going on seven years now, and it still seems like a pretty big gap. So uh, one day, you know, that's certainly a goal is to be able to bring to bear all of these powerful mathematical methods from theoretical ecology. Um, and so I'll probably, I'll, I'll continue working on both ends, I think, trying to take the theoretical models and make them more realistic and taking my realistic experimental data and trying to make them more abstract and somehow trying to, to work in opposite directions. Yeah, that's awesome because, uh, like, my company works on uh, rapid early detection sensors that uh, make uh, very fine detections of uh, oligos, viruses, and bacteria, and uh, we're studying kind of their metabolic byproducts and seeing how they evolve. So uh, I was just curious uh, uh, what approach you would be taking because I think also continuous monitoring is something that you could potentially look into some sort of advanced imaging uh, where you're looking at kind of uh, perhaps larger structures or other components that indicate perhaps uh, metabolic interference or something like that. So that's something that we're definitely looking at with the coronavirus ourselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I actually, I wrote like a little story. It was like a writing for the public contest at Simon Fraser University, but I talked about the smart toilet of the future, where basically you imagine some toilet that's analyzing your stool every time you take a poop. And it does do this continuous monitoring. And maybe, you know, that could be the avenue by which we get personalized microbiome recommendations. I thought that could be a really cool application. But of course, definitely, you know, years and years off still. Well, actually, not, not that far off as, as you might think. That's actually one of the applications of our sensor, which is... Uh... A simple resonator so it's it's actually quite inexpensive to integrate into something like a cell phone around the order of twelve dollars and uh yeah yeah i'll send you some uh, information in the back channel if you're curious but uh definitely an exciting time to uh bump into you and see uh i think uh, you're uh, in the west coast of canada if i'm not mistaken that's yeah, right I'm yeah over I'm in the east coast uh working out of uh waterloo so okay yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'll uh, be sure to look for look for your message. Yeah, I have a quick question, if you don't mind. This has been an awesome talk. Uh, you just uh, mentioned uh, the, you know, uh, spatial specificity of uh, microbial colonization within the gut, and you know, I've been paying attention to the uh, microbial literature as it pertains to you know, temporal fluctuations of microbiomes, particularly in the case of 
you know, how different species of microbes in the gut uh, fluctuate uh, on a diurnal cycle. So synced with the circadian rhythm. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you've studied that at all and how it may, you know, how time, the time of day may influence the composition of the microbial biofilm and how that may play a role in precision therapeutics in terms of timing of uh, when we try to colonize the gut with particular species. And the other thing that, uh, that, you know, all this talk of fecal matter transplant, I think there's just so much promise here. And, you know, in some of the uh, mouse studies you mentioned and with germ-free mice, uh, you know, several labs have shown that you can take um, the, the microbiome from an obese mouse transplanted in one of these obese mice, uh, transplanted in one of these germ-free mice, and it, it like preserves this obesogenic profile where these mice quickly gain weight, uh, and it, these metabolic changes happen fairly rapidly. And, and the same thing applies with, you know, so-called anxious mice or depressive uh, mice. So, you know, something about this biofilm signature, not only the composition of the microbes, but even the, the metabolic signature of given biofilms, I wonder um, how much headway can be made by you know, I know the composition varies quite a bit, but you had mentioned before there is some functional conservation. Um, and I wonder with AI and machine learning how we can um, characterize the, you know, the various signatures that these biofilms have using a, a metabolic lens. Uh, that's, that's my question for now. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, uh, really good question. And, and I think uh, a nice overview of some of the, the literature. Um, so, and actually, my first project, I did look at the timing of fecal transplants, but not sort of diurnal, but relative to antibiotic treatment. So I basically did some math modeling using these ecological models that said that fecal transplants are most effective if they're used immediately following antibiotic administration rather than, you know, long after. Um, and I basically tried to motivate this using thinking about dynamical landscapes of ordinary differential equations, but... Um, that's the extent of which I've thought about timing. Your comments about the diurnal, diurnal cycle um, strike me as very cool and, and probably quite relevant. Um, the person who comes to mind, uh, I would call this chronobiology, this field. And I know Michaela Martinez, who is uh, the professor, I believe, at Columbia. Um, she's awesome and knows way more about this than I do, but um, you know, if you're looking for, um, yeah, I know she's, she's studied chronobiology and looking at how these diurnal cycles affect, you know, immune system stuff. Um, but I, I can't speak to it much more than knowing that, um, it is a field that's being actively worked on. Yeah. Thank you so much. And you said Michaela Martinez, right? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And, and I'll just also mention, uh, uh, Matt Caberline from Washington University is doing some uh, really interesting work um, characterizing the microbiomes of pet dogs. Uh, it's part of his like uh, dog aging project where he's characterizing, you know, the aging across many different levels in these dogs, dogs, including epigenetic tests and metabolic profiles. But he's also looking at fecal microbes. So, uh, you know, it's a really interesting avenue of research as well, just because you know, dogs are so heterogeneous and then they and then the pet dogs especially share our environments. So I wonder um, how much similarities there are in terms of, 
you know, us and our, and our dogs in terms of microbial signature. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. Thanks. I'll, I'll look up, uh, I'll look up Matt. Yeah. So I'm happy to answer if, you know, people who haven't talked, spoken yet still have um, questions and I'm happy to answer those um, in the, the last few minutes here. Um, do, oh. oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Do you think you mentioned earlier that the microbiome, um, the function is relatively consistent, even if the um, like active bacteria aren't? Um, do you think that has any role in uh, the human's ability to be sort of scavengers um, throughout history? Uh, tough question. Um, maybe. I would say. Like, certainly I would say the functional consistency over time, like that definitely plays an evolutionary, to our evolutionary advantage, sorry, that definitely plays to our evolutionary advantage, right? The fact that you basically have all of these functional roles and they're always being fulfilled, that definitely helps. To maybe get more at your question, what I would refer you to is there's a lot of cool literature using the cockroach as a model system. Because it turns out cockroaches are omnivores, so they eat you know, both plants and non-plants. And they also have a really complicated microbiome. Like they have, like I think, hundreds of species in their microbiome, which is less than the thousands of humans, but more than the tens of flies. So, um, and I actually asked sort of, I saw somebody give a talk, I forget who it was, on, on the cockroach microbiome. And I asked basically the same question of, if their, if their microbial diversity could have given them an evolutionary edge. It seemed like it was not yet known. So um, uh, not sure yet, but, but cool question. I have, I have a, uh, a, a short question. Um, so, Brandon just flashed his mic and he didn't have a chance to speak yet. So go ahead, Brandon. I think it's the last question. Thanks for being here. Okay, uh, really quick. I don't like have any background in this but i'm i'm curious if um i know there was some i guess breakthroughs or what i heard in ai and uh, uh protein um structure uh and i wondered if there's any correlation uh with the uh protein in the uh, gut microbiome by uh microbiome that um causes a, a, a some of the uh the, um, I guess, healing properties, um, um, I guess, uh, if there's any correlation to that, um, or, or do they uh, use kind of like the, the same science or, or breakthroughs to, to, uh, to solve um, or predict uh, any of these outcomes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice question. I would say, uh, I think, Definitely, we're benefiting from understanding, you know, how proteins fold and, and all that. So in particular, you know, what I was really looking at here is like, which microbes are sticky and which are not. And I think what we're finding is that whether or not these microbes are sticky depends a lot on the proteins on their exterior. And so I think for sure, understanding, you know, these, these breakthroughs we've had in like protein folding and and how proteins work um, could absolutely be relevant for helping predict whether or not bacteria will stick or not. And then that, in turn, if we know which bacteria will stick, 
could help us um, predict, you know, which bacteria or can, can help us prescribe which bacteria you should put into a fecal transplant. So I definitely th think these things are interlinked. And that's really one of the cool things about like biophysics is that you often find these scales are connected from like the really small um, proteins up to the bigger bacteria, all the way up to like the biggest flies. All these things tend to be interconnected somehow. So yeah, nice question. Thank you. And uh, hell yeah Thank for you. biophysics. That's my jam. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Eric. We really appreciate um, answering all, you know, a lot of our questions and taking the time. And um, yeah, we welcome you back anytime to our club. Uh, please come back uh, to listen to other guest speakers or if you have any updates on your research or another project you want to talk about you know, message me or any of our moderators. And um, we're always happy to uh, see you back here. You were such a great um, guest speaker and you were really kind and uh, explaining everything in a way that we could all understand. So yeah, thank you. This was an amazing evening. So we really appreciate it. Well, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me and, and thank all of you attendees for, for listening and for your, your nice questions. Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks. Great. Um, so uh, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, please follow the club if you want to hear um, more um, scientists talking about their um, research. Tomorrow we will have Dr. Levine. He uh, was um, here on Clubhouse with me before um, he talked about the Xenobots, but tomorrow he will talk about his uh, technological approach to Mind Everywhere. Um, I posted on Twitter, I post also to the link to his uh, bioarchive uh, paper. So um, yeah, he, he's a really great and very interesting scientist, got many awards, but he's also a very um, nice person and makes time available to for us. Um, so yeah, it's tomorrow at 4 p.m. Uh, tomorrow at 10 p.m. we'll have Dr. Kaufer. She will talk about her new uh, research uh, related to anxiety and PTSD. She, she found differences in brain structure, myelin, and uh, yeah, she will present her interesting research that is, you know, very uh, translational research. And on Thursday, we will have um, Dr. Ksenia here. She will talk about her pathogen research. It's a little bit, um, you know, more similar to what Eric um, was talking, but she used a machine learning approach to study pathogens um, uh, interaction with the host and also from an evolutionary perspective. So uh, she's from Berkeley. She's a really great scientist. So uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to those rooms um, and to having all of you back. And um, yeah, join the club. Thank you, Eric. And have a good uh, night, morning, uh, wherever you are around the world um, day. 
And yeah, thanks again. Have a good anything. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for the room. It was great. Yep. Thank you. Bye.